So as we continue our new series this morning, Rise Up, I think the, the, the word or the phrase which has come to my mind when I think about the situation that we find God's people in at the point that we come to in the passage, which is really a follow-on from Rosie, so very much it's important to see that all together. The, the, the sentence which comes to my mind is how far they have fallen, how far God's people have fallen. And, and actually, for us to really appreciate the, the, the magnitude, the, the fullness of how far they have fallen, we need to go back in time a bit. It's actually worthwhile going back in time to the very start of the books of Samuel, because what we find is that at that time, Israel, they didn't have a king. Or should I rephrase that? They didn't have a human king because their king was God. In many respects, Israel had everything that you could imagine that they needed. Their king was God. But Israel looked across at the other nations around them. And in the typical, the grass is greener on the other side. They looked across and they started saying, hang on a minute, we want, we want a king like these other nations. We want somebody that will represent us to the other nations. And so they came to the prophet Samuel and they said that we want to choose a king. And Samuel said, you don't want to choose a king. This isn't what you want. Your king is God. The king that you choose is only going to take, 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 take from you. And if you look at Samuel, you'll see that. It's a whole speech of him saying, this is not a good choice. He said, no, no, no. We want, we want a king like the other nations do. And so Samuel went to God and God said, if they want a king, so be it. And so the people chose a king. And they chose the king. This was King Saul, who was everything that you could imagine in a king. The Hercules of the time. It talked about how big he was, how good looking he was, what a great warrior he was. He would have been the envy of the nations. But if anybody knows the story of Saul, then you'll realize quite quickly that he may have been the king that they wanted, but he certainly was not the king that they needed. And then here we find ourselves fast and forward after approximately 20 successive kings. And what is the situation that God's people find themselves in? Well, it is an incredibly sorry state. Their kingdom it's been split in two. You have Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. They are now during a time of famine. This famine is both physical, but also it's a spiritual famine as well. Because you'll find that the king Ahab carried in the tradition which King Solomon had started of taking wives from other nations. And the wife that he took, Jezebel, well, she was a follower of King Baal. Not King Baal, the god Baal. And 
she influenced Ahab so much. Here we have God's people who chose a king for themselves and time and again have realized how much that king wasn't the king that they needed. You'll find that as you look through the books of Samuel and as you go into one kings, which in many respects you can use them to, to get a full breadth of this, this remarkable time in the history of God's people, you'll find that God often judged the kingship by a very simple criteria. It was very much by whether they were faithful to God alone. Were they willing to be servants of Yahweh? And it's estimated that approximately eight out of these 20 kings came anywhere near that criteria of the kind of king that the people needed. The irony was, is that as Israel looked towards the other nations and began to be envious, to think that they wanted to be like these other nations, they brought themselves into a time of spiritual famine which was then represented so poignantly as Elijah called on to God to demonstrate this physically in the time that they were at. And that irony wouldn't have been lost on God's people because the God of Baal, he was often seen as the God of rain. He was the God that was supposed to be bringing down the rain to bless their people. The interesting thing is that if you look at the many plethora of gods from that period, so many of them would provide some form of prosperity, some sort of fertility. And yet, we'll discover there is a distinct difference between all of these gods with a lowercase g. I even do that in my notes just to make sure that I keep it in the right order. And our god, capital G, who isn't about bringing fertility and um, prosperity on God's people. Actually, God was about blessing the work of the hands of those who are faithful to him. And within this, there's this amazing truth that God, he sees people for their potential. He sees people for who he wants us to be. And we see through the whole biblical narrative, and especially in these stories during this time when Israel chose themselves a king, we see that he never gives up on trying to help us to achieve our potential. When we think about the title for this series of Rise Up, I think within that, there's this image of potential, this challenge to us of, of are we really trying to reach the potential that God has for us, or are we coming up with excuses as to why we're not quite able to follow in the way that God is calling us on? When we think about biblical images which capture this idea of potential, so often the image that we use is if you have a faith of a mustard seed, 
And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, well, I don't want to go to the classic sort of like image there. I was thinking that I'd like to come up with an image which is, is, is more typical for us, because how many people here have recently seen a mustard seed grow into a tree? And I don't mean on Google or on YouTube, whatever it is. And so when I was thinking about what image might be appropriate, the one which came to my mind was the image of an acorn. Because it's, it's a wonder that this little acorn with its hard exterior, how it is able to break out of that exterior, to, to plant itself into the soil, to survive in all of the different conditions which nature throws onto it, to grow up amongst the trees around it, to be deep-rooted, and yet to grow into this amazing, strong, and sturdy tree. Within this seed, which we can all imagine, I, I thought I should get an acorn and I didn't, but then I thought, well, online we could use special effects and it could look like I've got an acorn in my hand. But I haven't done that either, so you all need to imagine what it looks like. But, but think of the potential within this acorn of what it's going to grow to be. As you begin to think about that, I'm sure many of you will, will have that, that imagery come into your head of, of a great oak tree that you can remember. And as I was thinking about that imagery myself, it reminded me of the, the tree outside the place where I grew up, outside Rochester Cathedral. And I always remember coming past this, this great tree outside the front, which until yesterday I always thought was an oak tree. Um, but it's not, it's a counterpart tree. Um, but it still gives a good example. And then I was then thinking about the other tree, which was in the news, which had been chopped down. And I was thinking, surely that's an oak tree, but it's not, it's Sycamore Gap. So obviously that's a, a Sycamore tree. Um, and the irony is, is that there's approx approximately 600 different species of oak in the world today. And I kept on thinking of other tree species other than oak, but, but there you go. Um, the amazing thing is actually, is that as I was getting carried away with this image of the oak, what I then realized is that the Bible suggests that we are to be oaks of righteousness, to be mighty examples of God's splendor with roots that run deep and trees that grow tall and branches that give support to those who need a place to rest. It's actually in the famous passage in Isaiah 61 where Jesus had sat down and said that these words have been fulfilled, that the Spirit of God is upon me. It's within that passage that it says, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So there is something so rich about this call of this metaphor of us as followers of Christ, as servants to God, to be like the mighty oak, which means so much to so many people. Over the years, it has been a source of shelter. 
It has been a provider of food, of grains. It even has healing properties. And when I think about the properties of oak, one of, one of the, the big things is that oak trees, they have a longevity to them. The, the oldest oak in the UK is believed to be about 1,000 years old. And over this week, um, I, I'm a part of the mountain rescue team, and we had a call out this week. And it was a particularly tricky call out because it was in the middle of the night, and it was uh, an 83-year-old runner, which is amazing. Um, but unfortunately, he got himself into a spot of bother in a woodland where there had been some very serious storm damage from the storms a couple of years ago. And when we went to this woodland full of all of these conifer trees, it was like something out of an apocalyptic movie. We had trees everywhere that we're having to climb over and crawl under and try and help this person by stretching them out and so on. And um, this doesn't really have anything to do with it. But in the end, a helicopter sent down a guy on a wrench that was able to like wiggle his way down and, and take this guy to safety. But when, when I think about that scene, if they were oak trees, it wouldn't have looked like that. Because, because the roots... They weren't as deep. The trees were more fragile. There's something in this image of this faithfulness to God, which, which allows us to become powerful instruments of God's love. And if we take that metaphor and we apply this to people, you might begin to think of people that you know that, that capture this idea of an oak of righteousness. The, the person which came to my mind straight away was Eugene Peterson, who has touched countless lives by diligently being a servant of God, by being just overwhelmed by just so much of what the Bible is able to offer into the world that he spent the time to translate it in a way that people would be able to find it easier to understand. He had a pastoral heart, a quiet demeanor, which unlike so many of celebrity pastors, today it seems to be that his life has just left behind this, this strength, this example of what it means to be a real servant leader. And actually, if we consider this, there are so many everyday heroes who, in quiet acts of faith and compassion, make the world a better place. David was talking about that earlier when he said, we don't need to always seek to do the big things. Instead, if we are faithful to God, if we are oaks of righteousness, then that example that we can give to others, we should never underestimate it. God uses the faithful so that we might reach our potential. While all of these other gods with lowercase g promise prosperity and fertility and riches, God of Israel promises to bless the work of those who are faithful to him. We find that 
in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where it says, if you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your livestock, both the increase of your cattle and the issue of your flock. Blessed shall you be if you obey the Lord your God. And we see that in the, the, the passages that we were looking at last week and we continue to look at today. We can see where God always blesses people and in the most unexpected places. We have the widow of Zarephath. She wasn't an Israelite. She didn't know God in the same way as Elijah knew God. And yet she demonstrated her faithfulness her willingness to serve God by putting the needs of others first. And in that, God provided to her. She was going to have her last meal with her son, and yet God continued to provide to ensure that this small amount of supplies that she had would be what they needed and was able to feed Elijah. And then here we have Obadiah. And Obadiah is in an impossible situation. He's the chief steward. He is in an incredibly responsible and privileged position. His responsibility is to look after the affairs of the royal family. He was responsible to ensure that their instructions are carried out. So when Jezebel turned around and she said that I want you to go and kill all of the prophets of God, Obadiah would have had a responsibility within that. And yet we see here that Obadiah, despite working within this situation, still seeing to the affairs of the person that he was called to serve, he also went to the effort of hiding and sustaining the prophets in caves. And it said the reason that he did this was because he revered the Lord greatly. Isn't that an example of an oak of righteousness? If you were in his position, would you do that? Would you trust in God enough that you would Go and care for these people that your leader, or in his case, your master, had instructed should be killed. So it was no surprise when Elijah came to him and said, oh, by the way, can you go to Ahab and say that I want to speak to him? And his immediate reaction was, whoa, you know, coming up with excuses, trivial things, like if I do that, he might kill me. Um, when was the most recent time that we've had to carry that kind of message to somebody? I think, if anything, his reaction was pretty low-key compared to how I would react to a situation like that. And yet, he remained faithful. He trusted 
God. He played the part that God had called him to. And we can see within that a contrast with Ahab. Because Ahab, you'll find, really doesn't actually do that much. As you follow his story within this part of Kings, Ahab is really more of a bystander. And that's not in a good way. Because his lot is confirmed as much through his inaction as it is through the fact that he was allowing other people to make decisions for him. Whether it was Jezebel or even Elijah, it seemed to be that he was always allowing other people to make decisions for him. And I think we see within Ahab, there's, there's a challenge there. There's a challenge towards an attitude of apathy, an attitude of seeking to hide from God's demand on our lives by allowing other people to make decisions for ourselves, placing that responsibility in their hands. Or maybe being so preoccupied by things like trying to ensure that your horses are going to have grass, whilst ignoring the fact that your central role as king of Israel is to be a servant to God, and it's supposed to be being about allowing that God to bless the people, but instead, through inaction, your wife drives out the prophets. There's something dangerous here about apathy and indecision. It almost seems to be that it can be as dangerous as outright rebellion. And I think that's because if God uses the faithful to help realize our potential, then sometimes by even just trying to get away with not serving with God, we can be rebelling against him. In, in this respect, God is our author of faith. It's, it's, it's not a blind thing. It's following in the steps that God has laid out for us. It's recognizing that within all of us, God has planted seeds of potential. But it's our responsibility, like Abadiah, like Elijah, like the widow at Zarethath, to, to actually take that step to, to allow God to nurture what is inside us, to see where that might take us. It is a choice to be obedient to God's will on our lives. Or we could be like Ahab, and we could allow the world to passively shape us. There's a contrast between the two. On one side, you have the oppression, the famine, and the drought. And on the other side, you've got God's will to lift up the downtrodden, to nurture people and help them flourish. And I think as we think about where we are as SBC today, 
I think there's something quite poignant with that image. Um, I wonder if some people might be wrestling with the question of thinking about how far have we fallen? Or, or what does the landscape look like as we look out? But actually, the amazing thing is, is there is no doubt that God has planted seeds of potential in his church. And that he has great things for his church, for us at SBC. And I think that there is a challenge at the moment for us, a challenge for the faithful. Are we going to put that extra effort in to follow God's will on our lives? Are we going to be trying to seek out what it is that God is calling us to so we can be a part of this amazing work that God has set out before us? And it was in James that it talked about praying and serving. It said, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. James, the book of James, is a, an amazing testament to faithfulness in prayer and then demonstrating that in what we do, who we are. And I think that's the challenge for us today, especially as we face a lot of work in the future. And that's exciting, and that's something for all of us to be involved in. And so I just wanted to just finish with a poem, like a prayer, just as we just spend a little time and just think about this call on God in our lives. So I just ask you just to find that place where you're ready to listen to these words, to spend that time with God, to offer yourself to him so that he might use you to enact his will in the world. It seemed far too small, a tiny thing to offer him. Still she gave it all, and it made her heart sing. In the laying down her seas of life and faith, she knew she didn't own how they would be displayed. In her faltering hands, they resembled dust and ashes, handfuls of broken dreams waiting to be resurrected. But he saw great potential in every tear, hurt, and pain. As she surrendered it all, he blew away each trace of shame. There was a long waiting time when her soul sank despaired, before the eventual rise and shine flowered hope, joy, and happy tears. Amen. That was a poem by Joy Lenton.